My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as podcast producer is Neil Thibodeau. Hello. Hello, Pilar. How are you doing? Good. Were you around the raining ash yesterday with the fire? I was wondering what that was, but uh, the, the whole sky was orange. Is that what that was? It was brimstone, I'm thinking, maybe. Well, I have a policy that I don't um, check the news on the weekend, so sometimes I miss things. <laughs> you know, I think if there's an orange sun and stuff is falling out of the sky, you're permitted to check, check the out news. the news. Yeah, but that was what was going on, and it really looked... It was very... The end of time, yeah. It, it did. Oh. It did. I was teaching a class at the time, and like it kept getting darker and darker in the class. And Everybody came outside, and, and there was that orange sun. And Everybody thinks uh, somebody's taking the sun away. Yes, yeah. exactly. It, re- it reduces to uh, chaos and anarchy within your class. <laughs> let's, let's keep going with this. Yeah, yeah. What kind of TV show can we come up with? <laughs> and then they'll have to write themselves out of danger, and then, and I don't know. You know what? I'd watch it. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Why not? Especially if my name was on it. <laughs> okay, you get co-writing right, credit. Right. There you go. We have with us a guest who is uh, patiently waiting here. Her name is Heather Schmidt. Hello, Heather. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you have a lovely voice on the mic. Yeah, oh, thank my you. goodness. All right. Okay, let me tell you about Heather and her lovely voice. Heather. Heather is a composer. We haven't had a composer on the show yet. She is a composer for film, TV, and video games. She gave her first reviewed public piano performance at age six. She appeared on TV for the first time at age eight and had her first publication of an original composition at age nine. Are you feeling like a slacker yet? I, uh, I, every time I'm here, I feel like a slacker player. <laughs> What have I done with my life? <laughs> <laughs> Me too, a little bit. Um, she has twice received Juno nominations, and that's the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys, for Classical Composition of the Year. And as a composer, Heather's recent projects include the feature film Archaeology of a Woman, starring Sally Kirkland. Um, she also did Break Up Nightmare, a TV movie for Lifetime. Elvis Lives, a movie for AXS TV. Uh, Homesick, a video game for Lucky Paws. And her upcoming projects include an independent feature film directed by Russell Gannon called How to Get Rid of a Body and Still Stay Friends. Also, a VOD for Asylum, the company known for Sharknado films. Um, and their, uh, that upcoming project is Mom, Tommy Made Me a Dinosaur. <laughs> and also a web series called People and Pups. And in addition to being a composer, she is also co-EP on an Animal Planet series. So we're going to talk mainly about composing. Absolutely. And of course talk about, about uh, your Animal Planet series at the end because it is its own thing and people really need to know about it. But I'm fascinated. We have a composer on the show. Ah, ah. So I guess, I guess my, my first question to you is how did you get into film scoring to begin with? 
Well, my background was as a classical musician, as a concert pianist and composer. And when I was a student at Juilliard, they offered a workshop for composers called Composers and Choreographers. And so I took that workshop, loved it. Uh, I also danced for a while when I was younger, so I had a little bit of a background in dance, so I really connected with that genre. And I loved writing for dance. And then a couple of the choreographers that I ended up working with went to NYU Film School and became film directors. And so I started scoring their films and really loved it. Uh, one of the choreographers actually had a project. It was, it was an amazing project. It was back in 2004. It was a full-length ballet in Cyprus, of all places, with a full orchestra, 16 dancers. And it was 110 minutes long. And they had been rehearsing to temp music. Uh, and their composer fell through, and then six weeks before the show, they had no original music, which they needed. So they hired me for that, to write 110 min minutes of music. In, <laughs> in how many weeks? Six weeks. In six weeks. And, and the music was fully choreographed. So it was pretty much like scoring a film, because it was basically a finished product that I had to fit music to. And it was soon after that that I started scoring the dancers' actual films and realized that I really loved the process of contributing music to a, another genre as opposed to just writing music on my own. So, and so what is the difference uh, between composing for live concert music versus composing for film, TV? What, what's the major difference there? So uh, there's, there's a few differences. One, for, for composing live concert music, typically when you get commissioned to write a new work, it's a blank slate. They'll usually tell you the duration of the piece that they want, such as 15 to 20 minutes, or it could be exactly 20 minutes, but it's you know, general duration and the instrumentation. Is it for orchestra? Is it for a solo cello? Is it for a group of instruments? So you get the instrumentation and the duration, and then that's it. You can just do whatever you want. There's nobody looking over your shoulder asking you to change stuff. It's, it's uh, completely liberating and free. Um, the, the difference with live concert music is also that you have to be very careful with structure because you have to be able to have a 20 to 30 minute piece that can stand on its own that has the proper ebb and flow and the pacing that's kind of all, all in one. Uh, as opposed to film scoring where it's super, super specific. You literally have to time the music to the exact frame millisecond <laughs> when, when something's happening. And so, you're smiling. It sounds so stressful. <laughs> yeah, it sounds tough to, to balance music with um, uh, you know, your emotional things that you're trying to do and then like, oh, and at this moment, even if the song's doing something different, I've got to emphasize this moment. Yeah, it can, it, it's, it's a totally different process because you're serving the visual as opposed to concert music where the music is the final product. So, okay, so tell me about the process. <laughs> I'm sure everybody out there has, has often wondered, you know, how does one, as you just said, Neil, sort of match the emotional content on screen to music that would express that emotion? So, uh, I, yeah, tell us a little bit about how this happens. Well, it's largely a collaborative process in film. The, the key thing is that although I can definitely contribute ideas, ultimately I'm trying to serve the director's vision of what they want emotionally. So that can also be interesting because different people on the film can have different ideas and you're trying to please everybody. <laughs> but ultimately music really controls the undertone. The, the bottom line is you want the music to support the whatever's happening emotionally, but you don't want it to overpower it. You don't want people to be so aware of the music that it takes them out of the film. 
but let's say for instance you have a dark hallway and you know does the music give away what's about to happen around the corner you know you can have scary music before you see what's scary to kind of set you in the mood or you could have very light-hearted music and then bam when you go around the corner it shocks you so it really the music really can dictate the pacing of the emotion it can mislead you from what's on screen or it can follow it um, and there, there's just so many different ways it can go and it's ultimately a lot of collaborations I said with the director and kind of bringing their vision to life are you working with a script at all because people people of course everybody's listening their script writer you are also a script writer I forgot to mention that you, you know I Heather has taken classes here uh, at on the page so I happen to know you know you're very good at that so do you ever work with a script or is this all always after it's created often I will get a copy of the script before the film's been shot uh, as long as I've been hired that early in the process sometimes composers aren't hired until the film's pretty much in the can so in those cases I'll often be given a script afterwards, but sometimes it's changed so much from the original script. But if, it, if I'm brought onto the process early, I'll typically be given a copy of the script to read so that I can then meet with the director and we can discuss you know, what, he, what his vision is for the script, what kind of emotions. Sometimes the directors have very specific ideas of what they want for the music. Sometimes they have no idea at all. And are they, are, are they relying on um, the temp music to kind of articulate whatever they're looking for? I mean, it, or are you sometimes just given a movie with no music? I mean, Sometimes I'm given a movie with no music. Sometimes I'm given a movie with the temp score. And that's both a blessing and a curse because... They get used to it. They, they get so used to it. There's actually a term for it called temp love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the director get, has listened. You know, when they're in the process of editing, they watch the film over and over and over, hun- literally hundreds of times. And it gets to the point where even if it was music they didn't necessarily initially like, it's, they're just so used to hearing that that anything else sounds wrong. And the reason that they've got temp music on and they're but they're hiring you is they, they may have brought in a... a music that they like but they're not going to get the rights to that they can't afford that um or they want something that is original right and they've always wanted that and and they have to be reminded right well and and the other thing is temp music is not timed specifically to their to their visuals it can it can overall give the essence of what they might be looking for but it's not going to time to the millisecond and the pacing yeah, unless they do a master Frankenstein cut and paste, isn't going to completely it's not, fit. It's not going to be custom designed Mm-mm. for their project. You exactly. know, it's it's going to feel like, oh, well, this is the the Bane theme from you know the Batman movie, and it's like, oh, and this it, it's never going to have a complete life of its own. Exactly, and and so one of the advantages of having a live composer is that besides that, you can custom fit it. You can also tie thematically different mm-hmm. music together. Often for the temp score, it's whatever happens to be in the editor's library. They may or may not even have a musical background. They just, it's literally what's on their computer or what's in the database of the library they have access to. And they just throw it in, sometimes randomly if they're in a rush, not always, it depends <laughs> on the project. But you know, one of the advantages of having an original composer is that I can bring all the different emotions, all the different styles, but also have more subtle musical themes connecting them so that it feels much more cohesive. It's not necessarily something that everyone would pick out and say, oh, I see the connection of that, but there's even subconsciously, I think you can kind of feel the connectedness in the integration when it's all a score that's been put together. What do you mean by musical themes? So just just like with a story that has you know, a main theme that it's about, 
it, as a composer, I'll often come up with certain themes that fit recurring elements in the film. For example, in the film I just finished scoring, Elvis Lives, there is, it's basically based on the premise that Elvis is alive and well. Uh, That's a premise? Come on. Well, I mean, we all know he's alive and well. Obviously. <laughs> Duh. He's, yeah. he's living it, with Hitler in Brazil. Yeah. Sure. No, no, no he, he's, in, he's living in the 70s okay. and uh, in witness protection. Ah, there we go. Yeah. Anyway, um, but there's, there's, there's various love sections. There's love scenes with him and Priscilla. There's love scenes with him and his daughter, different types of love. There's love with him and his fiancée, Ginger. The, the, cut, the film cuts back and forth between the months leading up to his death and then his new life after he's dead, but not dead. And so then he also has a new love, uh, a woman named Shirley, who, who's the love of his life in his new life. So, so thematically, I've basically had one main love theme that I transformed and morphed to fit each of these different characters that he's had love relationships with of different types. So uh, if you're going through and analyzing the score, you would see, oh, that's the love theme again. But each time it's, it's modified for the specifics of the scene, because you know, it's a love scene, but are they getting along or are they disagreeing over something? Um, and of course, then there were sections when he's having you know, drug-induced hallucinations and visions. So there's a theme for every time he has a hallucination and vision. And each each time that comes, again, it's custom fit. They're not identical themes. I mean, you'd recognize it as connected. Um, if you were listening to it, you would definitely see that they're similar, but they're also tweaked to fit the specifics of how the emotion of this vision is a little bit different. Is it a little darker? Is it a little more intense? Is he closer to unraveling? And, and the music can kind of hint at all of those things. Do you, uh, do you do like the Peter and the Wolf thing? The, you know, each character has like a theme or, you know, or, 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 or you, yeah. <laughs> it depends on the film. Um, sometimes you want something that's that obvious and other times you want to be more subtle because you don't want to hand lead the audience that obviously. So, uh, often it's more subtle than that, but, but there, but again, it depends on the director. It depends on the genre of the film and it depends literally just on the specific project, whether you want something that every time a certain character comes in, is there a theme, you know, it, it, you don't always want a bad guy theme and a good guy theme. Cause then it, then it Feels becomes almost, com yeah, yeah, almost comical and more ca cartoons are often very much yeah. that way. Uh, more so than what about video games? Uh, do you have like uh, when a certain character comes in? Is there? Or would, I mean, the tricky thing about video games is like it's not a again. It's like it's not a finite uh, amount of music, right? It's got to it's got to kill time while somebody walks through an environment. Yeah. Or, well, so, so here's the tricky thing about video games. I don't know if it's tricky, but it's the, the difference between writing music for video games versus for films is that in films it's specific. It hits the exact frame of a second. Video games, every player plays at a different pace, so you can't predict when they're going to go around the corner and hit the big moment. And so what you need to do with video game music is you need to have something that creates an atmosphere mm. that's constant enough that it won't pull them out of the world. For example, if it's something that has scary moments in it, you can't put the scary stuff in the music because they'll be jumping, wondering what they're missing on screen. But you also have to make it different enough that it doesn't get boring when if they're, you know, somebody can finish a level in a matter of minutes. Some people will take hours. So it has to be something that can loop mm. Um, over an extended period and keep keep the world... It, it, it's similar to film in that you'll discuss with the video game creator what kind of emotion they want, what kind of overall feel, but then it's it's an overall ambience that the composer creates as opposed to a scene-by-scene, shot-by-shot 
depiction. Is it ever supposed to manipulate the player into continuing to play? Like, is it ever supposed to push them forward into fighting more or moving forward into the next hallway? Or um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily pushing them to play in that way, but a lot of times the levels are interconnected. So you have to have you have to have music that can overlap, and when they do jump into the next level and go up to the next stage of the game, that it doesn't sound like they've... It has to be different enough that you know that they've reached the next level, but it can't be so jarring that it feels like they've just started something completely new. So there's definitely an element also in video game music where it's kind of building layer upon layer, and you kind of want it so that at any point if they jump out of level one, the music transition into level two will be somewhat smooth, even though different, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking of Heather like composing this piece and then like being like, oh God, I, I need some inspiration and then playing a video game. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and then going back. I mean, do you actually play these games as, as you're composing? I'm not a big video game player, believe it or not. I, I know you and I, yeah. I, I imagine that to be true. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like, I like watching well, the last one I did uh, for Lucky Paws called Homesick. It, it was just an absolutely gorgeous 3D puzzle game. Uh, Barrett Meeker, the game creator, he just had this amazing tapestry of visuals. And it's it's just... So I, so I saw the stills of the different rooms and, and there were, I think, nine different levels. So I had, a, I had visuals of all the rooms as he was building them. I kind of knew what emotion the, the player is supposed to be feeling. Uh, at each stage, and so I tried to incorporate that, but I never actually, I, I watched him play some of the game <laughs> so I could see it in motion, and he would send me video clips of what it would look like to go through the different levels, um, but I never actually played the game myself. What um, what level of, um, of, produ of producing do you do as well? In, in other words, um, for something like that, you're composing for a video game, do you compose it at home on your system, you know, on your, your home system? Uh, is it something that you would you'd kind of feed them raw tracks and then the, their computer algorithm is gonna mix the, the, the songs together? Um, so a lot of the films that I do are, are low enough budget that I basically do the whole thing myself in my home studio. The exception to that is sometimes the project has a budget for live musicians, and so then I will um, hire a recording engineer and li live musicians, anything piano I play myself. The, the Homesick score was actually solo piano and cello, which is kind of unusual for a video game. Um, but we recorded it at Sony uh, in the Barbra Streisand scoring stage, which was awesome. awesome. Uh, I've, I've recorded, I think, four or five scores there. And I just, I love that facility. Um, how, um, how long did it take to record that? I mean, because you kind of have to overwrite that stuff for a little bit, right? I mean, to be able to allow a a level to play for as long as it needs to. Yeah, there was there was a little over an hour worth of music, uh, and we recorded it in one in kind of a long day of recording session. Um, so yeah, so, so so it depends on and then it's what will happen with the music is you let's say you have live musicians, or sometimes even if you're doing it in your home studio, sometimes the project will ask you to just give them a final delivery of everything mixed together, so especially for orchestral stuff. It's, you know, the violins, the brass, the woodwinds, the percussion, everything all in one. They just want one track. And then they'll raise or lower in the mixing session how loud they want it. Sometimes you'll be asked to deliver what's called stems. And that's basically broken down parts. It can be just the violins, just the cellos, just the, often it's, it's by group, so strings, winds, percussion, brass, 
Uh, but it can also be upper strings, just violins, violas, and then just lower strings, cellos and basses. And, the, and then they, on their end, when they do the mixing, will adjust the level, which gives them more flexibility. So if, if one particular instrument line is clashing with one of their sound effects or with dialogue, they can lower just that wherever instrument is in the range where it's causing a conflict. Because often when I get the film, I don't actually have the full sound effects yet. So uh, it depends on the project and the schedule, but often the whole post-production practice happens in a very hasty <laughs> time frame. And so often I, I, ha I may have a temp version of what they had as sound effects. I may have none of the sound effects. So I'm just kind of guessing. I, I do try to be mindful of dialogue always, and whether it's male voices or female voices and not having instruments that will conflict or compete. What, what kind of influences co compete with male and female voices? Well, for instance, you know, if, if, if it's a really high-pitched female voice and you had flutes and violins in the similar register, it would, it would kind of clutter mm. the sound because they're all kind of in the same timbre, same range. So you might want more lower strings, which will kind of blend underneath um, as opposed to competing with it. Likewise, if you have really deep male voices and you have a lot of low cellos and basses, everything sounds, can sound muddy. Um, again, it, it's, it's, it's partly the pitch of the voice, whether it's female, male, but it's also the, the timbre. Like some people have voices that really cut through and it doesn't matter so much. Some people have very soft spoken voices that almost kind of blend in. And, and so those are the ones that you especially have to be careful with when you're composing, that you don't have something that will compete with that. Now, um, as a writer storyteller, I would imagine that, you know, going back to your first example of you're in a hallway and there's something scary around the corner and do you give it away or do you surprise? How much control do you have on that storytelling at that point? None. Okay. <laughs> well, I won't say none. Uh, some projects, there's none. It's truly what the director and wants. And occasionally, there's influences with the producers and the writers, depending on who's funding the film. And so it can get complicated. You have different people wanting different things. Um, a lot of directors are open to the composer's suggestions. So uh, I, there's definitely been many projects where I've been able to say, hey, you know, they had a particular idea, that, like they wanted to give the surprise away, and I was like, you know, maybe it would be more effective if we, I won't even say that, I'll say, how about we just try it for comparison? You know, is that see. something that comes up early in like the spotting session, or is it something that once they've heard a few samples, they're thinking, oh, maybe we go in this direction or that direction? At what point can you start having, you know, sticking up for your perspective on a film? <laughs> um, it, honestly, it depends on the director, A, whether I've worked with them before, because if, if I've worked with them before then, and they know me, then they're automatically more open pretty much from the beginning. But it also just depends on the director. I mean, there's some directors that really like to micromanage or have very strong ideas uh, of what they want and th that aren't so open. And then the other thing that's also interesting is a lot of directors don't have any musical background mm -hmm. or experience. And for a lot of directors, not all, but for many, it can be very challenging for them to describe. They have very specific ideas what they want, but they don't know how to describe it in a way that makes sense musically. Uh, for example, there was one project I worked on and there was kind of a, a sad scene and, and I wrote something that I thought was very slow and lyrical and and fit pretty well what they told me they wanted emotionally and I played it for them and they said oh it's too upbeat and like in my mind <laughs> there's nothing upbeat about this at all so my job 
is then to translate what they mean by that. <laughs> do they ever sing to you like, no, I want like like do they ever yeah, give, give do you that? a line reading? Yeah, like yeah. You, know, you go to the mechanic and you go, my my car's making this sound. Right, exactly. Do they ever say, I want it to be like that? I had one director who was probably the most insane micromanager that I've ever had, uh, who didn't know anything about music. And he would we'd be sitting there and I'd be playing something and I had the you know, electric keyboard there. Um, and he's like, well, how about you just try that note? And he would just like randomly poke a note. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, that, that was a rare uh, instance. Uh-huh. But, but also, also with, you know, with instruments, for example, they may say, I want an oboe, but they really mean a horn or they want something to play up high, but the instrument they want to play up high doesn't actually play up high. So there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of times a big part of the job of being a film composer is, is just the translation from trying to figure out what the director is really trying to say. Uh, some of them are, some of them are very literate and very good at explaining what they want, even if they don't have musical experience, they're just good at saying emotionally what they want and then I'm able to just translate that into musical terms. What are what are some musical emotional terms? Like wh- what words work for you when a director says it and what what would you translate as a musical term? Well, for instance, I mean just basic stuff such as you know, intensity of something, which in my, you know, the director can say, I want this to be more intense. And then my job is to figure out, is it intense louder? Is it intense more instruments? Is it intense faster rhythm? So there's, so something like intense can mean a lot of different things musically. And it's kind of my job to figure that out. Um, More basic stuff. I want this to be more cheerful. I want this to be sad. I want it to have a tinge of melancholy. Those are all things that you can translate off often on the most basic level, it can often be something as simple as putting it in a major or minor key, or you know, a key is kind of a blend. Um, so those types of things. Uh, certain instruments have different characters. You know, for for example, you know, violins can be very lyrical. Strings in general are often more emotive in in a certain context. Instruments like clarinet can t- tend to come off as more comical. Again, it depends if they're blended in the orchestra. They can be very dramatic and serious too. But there's there's some instruments that are just brighter by nature. Like a, a trumpet isn't the best instrument for something that's deep and scary. <laughs> what's what's your favorite style, or or is there a style that you're known for as far as, as composing, or do you jump around from? Style I, to style? I jump around a lot depending on the project. That's the other thing that's that's a little bit different in film scoring. As a as a classical concert music composer, I have kind of a more distinct style that is recognizable as mine. But as a film composer, you kind of have to be a chameleon and you definitely want to try and bring in some of your style uh, into it as much as you can, but it depends on the project. For example, the Elvis project, some of its score that's very kind of traditional Heather Schmidt. (laughs) And then, but there's some, it was my first time writing some electric guitar cues and some blues cues that are kind of an Elvis style, which was a really fun, creative um, exploration for me. Were they they allowed to use any actual Elvis music? They, uh, because of the budget of the film, they ended up licensing some songs that were in Elvis style from another living person, but there was no, the only actual Elvis song they had in there is, uh, his song Love Me Tender mm-hmm. is is actually from a public domain song called Lee. so they did their own version of that. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so then going back to your question of whether I, what if I'm known for a particular thing, I think that the two things that I love doing that, I'm especially known for are orchestral 
type scores because I had I had a huge amount of experience as an orchestral classical composer prior to becoming a film composer. So uh, I love writing for full orchestra, especially when there's real orchestra, but a lot of times I have to create it on my computer. And then, uh, and then solo piano or solo piano with mixed instruments because that's my instrument and I can always record it and play it. Uh, so, so for example, in the How to Get Rid of a Body uh, and Still Stay Friends, one of the reasons they hired me was because of my piano specialty because uh, they, they envisioned that in the score up front. Now, um, I, I'm going to ask you a totally stupid question. Okay? No, no stupid questions. N- well, not that any of my questions are particularly bright. So maybe I'm <laughs> just going to ask you a regular question. That, okay, when, when I think of film scoring, there used to be these little interstitials that they would do in the movies where they'd be like, it's the Foley artist and it's the composer, right? You know, yeah, well, exactly, you wouldn't yeah. know you're not as old as me. But, but um, I always imagine like a John Williams kind of dude and the, the movie is playing on this big screen behind him and then he's like conducting as he's watching and sort of creating the music as he's watching. Uh, is it anything like that? Like, are you watching and composing as you watch? Like, composing uh, to the feeling. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, so... That's so cool. I know. <laughs> so, so the way it works is that I, I get a copy of the film with a time code stamp in it, mm-hmm. which means that as the film is playing, I literally see the numbers rolling by for the minutes, seconds, hours, and literally the frames. And so in the, in the program that I use for film scoring, I happen to use Digital Performer. Um, Cubase and Logic are kind of the two other main programs out there. Um, but yeah, so, so what I will often do is when I am watching a scene, I will kind of sit down and improvise what I think might fit kind of a skeleton of it. Or uh, I do a lot of composing kind of in my head, so mm. I may not be literally playing something, but I'll be watching and kind of hearing the music in my head that I think might fit. And then, then once I decide on the kind of music that I'm going to do, then I start getting into the specifics and figure, okay, this is a... You know, sometimes these moments will be figured out with the director in the spotting session, but a lot of times it's up to me, at least on the first pass. So I'll be like, well, this is a moment that I really want to hit emotionally. So then I, I literally, it's very specific calculation. You're like, if you want this beat to hit there, what's the speed of every beat up until there? And it can be random numbers like 132.28 is what it takes to hit that beat on that frame. <laughs> it's almost like... You know, in, in writing, right, we, we talk a lot about writing from the, from the act breaks backwards. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're saying, I have to hit this certain emotional moment in order to get there. What do I have to do, right? Pretty much. It, again, it depends slightly on the scene or, um, but often that's the case. You have, you kind of figure out where the markers are of the major points you want to hit. And then you have to figure out how much you can fit in before that. What, what, how you want to get to there. Do you want it to build to that? Do you want it to drop off and then suddenly be that? Do you want it to be, you know, there's just so many options, but definitely the key hits of something where you want a dramatic musical shift with the music, you you definitely do some planning kind of like what you were talking about. And, yeah, okay. uh, you were talking about ebb and flow. Uh, it's something that I feel like um, is really important in, in film and pacing and whether it's a, a, a written story or whether it's... Um, you know, the editing process, uh, ebb and flow, I feel like is, is the essence of um, our emotional connection to a story. Um, you were talking about, you know, having to construct that. Um, how, do you, are you following an emotional through line of your own 
Is there something that's deciding, this is when the audience needs a break from the, the, from the intensity of the music. This is when we need to pull it back. Like, is there an internal radar you have there? Or you, you, like you're saying, you're listening to it in your own head as you're, as you're watching it. Yeah, there's definitely an internal radar for that. And then sometimes the internal radar gets affected by what the director wants. <laughs> but absolutely, you have to be aware. Because if, if you know, in a big action movie, if it's intense all the time, you kind of lose, it, it almost numbs it out. Uh, and likewise, a lot of times the music is brought in to kind of help with the pacing. If, for example, they didn't get all the footage they wanted or an actor's performance is a little bit flat, you know, or the scene just now that they've got it edited feels kind of slow and long, especially if there's too much exposition, which people that haven't taken Pilar's class <laughs> yeah, don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but yeah, so, so definitely the music can help move a scene along that's feeling kind of static. And um, so, so it's, a, it's a big, it, it can play a big role. I think you just answered a question I was going to ask, which is what you do when you have bad material. Like if you have, you know, I, I would imagine good material begets, you know, great composition and, 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 and helps you, helps you compose. But when it's bad material, the composition has to help the script. Um, so what you just said about exposition is one example of that, right? Oh, God, yeah. this is just so talky. How do exactly. we make the talky not sound so talky, awful? Yeah. Um, are there other examples of, of where a, a project goes astray and you're like, this music has got to help this at this yeah. point? Well, there's, there's no question that the better the film is, the easier it is to write music. In some cases, it almost writes itself because you could, you just feel more connected. There's more to react to emotionally. Instead of fixing problems, you're taking the project to the next level. Exactly. Right? But there's definitely projects I've done where there's a lot of scenes where nothing really happens. And and it, and it doesn't move. It's not a scene that moves the story forward. It's not a scene. And you're sitting there thinking, I don't even know what the point of this scene is in terms of the story. You know, I have no idea what emotion the director wants here sometimes because it doesn't make, it, sometimes it doesn't even make sense that it's in the film, honestly. I mean, of course it's subjective and everybody has a different opinion, but there's sometimes there's scenes that really feel like they don't work. And sometimes the directors are aware of that and there's, and they'll, they'll give me direction and say, Hey, this scene didn't really work the way we wanted, but we need it here for this reason. What, uh, what I want you to do is this. Um, I'll give you an example in, in one of the films that I scored, there was uh, a girl walking down the street and it's just kind of, for, for a tiny bit of the shot, the camera's following her from behind, but then it goes to the side and then it's in front. So it just seems like a normal shot. But what they wanted was they wanted her to have the feeling that she was being stalked by somebody and there was somebody following her. So even though the camera didn't continue that following thing, they wanted me to set it up so strongly when the camera is following her in the first few seconds that it would feel like she was, like they, they literally wanted the music to make it feel like she was being followed and stalked by a person that you don't see on screen. <laughs> did it, did, were you able to pull that one off? Um, to some extent, <laughs> I did the best I could. I mean, but it's, I don't know whether, you know, something that big when there's a whole, like when there's literally music supposed to depict a person that's not in the film, it's, it's kind of hard. Uh, but then some, sometimes there'll be things such as, you know, there's a person in the film who's a bad person, a villain as it turns out, but you don't find that till later. And so sometimes the director will want the music to give subtle hints that there's something a little dark or twisted. And sometimes they don't want it at all till later. So it's that kind of thing. I wonder if that goes back to 
Neil's question about having scoring for a particular character. So if we start hearing, like, and we're not even realizing it, sort of a pattern in the music that every time you're bringing that in, every time you want this person to seem followed, almost like there's a character, but we only recognize it by the music. Mm-hmm. Is that one way to do it? To- it can. Again, it, depend, it depends on the project because a lot of times you'll have multiple characters in the same scene. Mm-hmm. So I would say that uh, except in the case of something where you want somebody being followed or there's a character who's recurring who you want to be a villain and, and either give that away early or not. Um, those kind of cases will have every time, you know, for, for example, you know, the shark and jaws, you know, it's like oh, that, yeah. that duh, 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 you know, like that, that's always just, that's the shark theme. Um, so, but it's not usually that obvious. <laughs> um, it can be for certain things, but I, I would say more, it's more the overall, the, the bigger follow for most films is just the bigger emotion of the scene. You know, what, what's happening emotionally in the scene is it's, and the transformation from beginning of the scene to the end, which is another thing when, when, again, when there's no emotional change in the scene, if the characters are flat, if the characters don't have much personality, it's really hard to score because everything almost feels like it doesn't, it's hard to find something that fits and that will make it sound better when there's, you know, not that much to sound better. I don't know if that makes sense. And it's, it's like, you know, not all films are like that, obviously, but there's definitely some dead scenes where there's just truly nothing happening and it's, and they're just talking and talking and it's, and, and, and because they're talking so much, you can't even have such strong music because it'll over, it'll conflict with the dialogue. So those, those the, the, the talking scenes where nothing happens are probably the hardest to score. Take note. <laughs> um, do you tend to, uh, write more often scene by scene or as as like a one big piece that's that's running throughout the the project i mean is it is it tough to separate those things and bring it back together or is it in your mind is it just one continuous that's a really good question and it depends on the film uh the, again the elvis film just because that's the film i just recently finished i did something which i haven't normally done which is i kind of composed it by the themes you know i did all the love scenes even when it was different characters I did a lot of those together I did kind of the there's moments when he's kind of being a spy character and the, you know so I, I kind of that's the first time I've actually done a film quite like that um sometimes I will go scene by scene um and then sometimes I will have if definitely if it's like a you know like a sequence as you talk about in your classes where, where the music kind of connects all the scenes um, the transitions of scene between scenes is another huge thing yeah. because sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes the music will kind of start the next scene before the next scene starts. Sometimes it's right on the cut. Uh, sometimes you want a very obvious transition from one scene to the next. You can have, you know, percussion or, a, you know, one of, one of the companies I do scores where they love to have uh, suspended cymbal rolls <laughs> on, 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 uh, transitions between scenes to kind of blend them in but but that's where the editing is interesting because when you're watching a film you know for instance without the score sometimes there's a dissolve for instance from one scene to an next and it's a very smooth floaty transition um the elvis film that i did actually had a lot of slides um where it was kind of sliding between one to the next so then it's like where do you start the music change do you do it at the beginning of the slide when it arrives to the new slide um so, so whether the music for the next scene starts in the scene before or right on it or sometimes even after, sometimes the previous scene will bleed into the next scene. Um, I am never going to look at, a, at anything on screen again the, in, in the same way. You know, I never, I'm one of those people I think that just takes the music as a given. You know, 
for you, you must hear the music first when you're when you're watching something, right? You know, it's interesting. Um, in, in general, I'm like that. Like, I, I cannot listen to music passively when I'm in the car or when I'm trying to relax. I know some people, when they're writing, they listen to music. I absolutely cannot do that because I'm like, that's the C sharp and that's the, you know, this <laughs> and that and whatever. Um, but the interesting thing is when it's a really good score in a film, my first time watching through, I don't pay that much attention to the music. It, it blends in. Like, I'm so, if I'm so drawn into the world, it's the one exception in my life where I can not completely be aware of the music. But the second that the music's not working or that it's too much or too little or it's not complimenting the film, then I then it's like I, it's almost like I can't even see the film. All I hear is it's hard music. to shut off it's hard to shut <laughs> off that composer's brain. Yeah. Or yeah. I would I would imagine if the if the story does start to bore you, you start to hear the music. Absolutely. <laughs> um, like like with me when I'm watching something, I'm not sitting there and going, oh the writer should do this and the writer should do that. But if the the if it goes South, if it's not working, you then can't suddenly help. I'm analyzing all over the place and just trying to figure out okay what could make that scene work because you're out of the story. The second something doesn't work, it takes you out of the world of the film, out of the world of the story, and then and then your analytical brain, you know, whether it's analyzing that or whether you just start thinking about something other than the film, like your grocery list, uh, it's all about how much the the world of the film can grab you and keep you in that moment. Now, for people who haven't really um, maybe watched TV or, or film with this appreciation before, what should they watch? What, what influences you as a composer with film? Who are, who are, what, are, what are some movies or TV shows that do it really, really well? Oh, man, there's so many. Um, I do happen to be a huge fan of Bernard Herrmann and a mm, lot of his films. Like, yeah, I love his yeah. stuff. Like Vertigo is one of my favorite scores. Um, Morricone, I love Cinema Paradiso. You know, there's, but the, honestly, there's just it's there's just so many, and, and there's say more so that people people. Oh, um, I actually really liked the score for um, Guardians of the Galaxy. I know, I know, some of it was, was like the seventies. Yeah, well, some of it was the seventies stuff, but like the 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 um, that was written by Tyler Bates. The score, like for example, the scene where Groot has all those spores that are kind of flying off of him and lighting up the music there to me is just really magical so th so there's moments that I'll remember of uh, you know um there was one film and I'm completely blanking on the title of it it's it's Tom Cruise and he's got white hair and he's kind of a vanilla sky no born on the 4th of July mm, no I don't think so anyway, but there's anyways there's a scene I can still picture the scene really clearly um and, and he's he's in this library or some kind of building with shelves and books searching for somebody and there's this gorgeous viola solo while he's yeah you know, there's like things like that will stick out to me we gotta find that okay right, I gotta figure, I gotta figure out which movie green that was yeah. Tom Cruise no not green white what yeah did you just hear green hair no gray oh gray, gray. Hair. gray. maybe I think it was like whitish hmm. it's been like a long time but the, the that viola solo is just like stuck in my like I often Think about that. Let's call Pat. He knows every Tom Cruise movie in the world because he still has a crush on Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to definitely make sure we don't leave this podcast without jumping to oh. talking about your show on Animal Planet, which is called PenVet. Yes, that's been the working title, and I believe that's what they're going to call the show when it airs. Cool. It is a docu-series or the co-EP on it. And um, you said its origins are the nonprofit dog rescue Hollywood Huskies? Well, that was kind of uh, 
a post effect of the origin. The origin was that I lived in Philadelphia for a year and I have a husky mix named Echo who got super sick. And she spent a whole week in ICU, almost didn't make it. She had 28 blood transfusions. It was one of the most awful periods ever. It was just, it was horrible to see how, what she went through. But she's now 12, by the way, and super happy and healthy. But anyways, I spent an entire week at Penn Vet. Got to know the vets there. Uh, I got to see what Penn Vet was. And it's, it's really unlike any other place I've ever seen and pretty much unlike any other place in the country. Perhaps UC Davis does some of the same things, but they do, they do cat kidney transplants. They, at the time they were the only vet hospital in the country that had a doggy blood mobile. Uh, they treat a lot of the major race horses. They actually have a colony of a hundred feral horses that they so they can study behavior. They, they have a, now they have a program for training bomb and search and rescue dogs, um, and they treat all the Philadelphia Zoo animals. So they would be doing a root canal on an aardvark, which has never been done. There's no textbooks on where to do an aardvark root canal. They would remove tumors from a jaguar, um, kangaroo surgery, or there's a penguin who'd swallowed coins that had been thrown into its enclosure, and they had to remove the coins surgically. Yeah. Um, and, they, and now they have this very uh, fantastic crossover program with humans where there's, you know, for instance, dog will have some condition that's, you know, not treatable by anything other than some kind of experimental surgery. And if they do the experimental surgery and it works well, then they are able to um, speed up trials of that on some kind of similar human process. Wow. So every week it's going to be some... It's going to be following... It's basically the, the show is following fourth year uh, students in their final year before graduation. Uh, and there's certain key faculty. Um, it's, it's just an amazing facility. The people that are there that, that work there. Anyway, so, so, so my dog... This was eight years ago. <laughs> my dog was there for a year. And I, I ever since then I was really wanting people to know about PenVet and just to, it, the stuff they did there is just so amazing. I mean, I had no idea. So I thought that'd be so great to share. So uh, eight years later, and so I, I teamed up with different producers over those eight year periods. And every time we got close to doing a show, like the medical director changed and they didn't want to do a new project or there, there were just always the timing didn't work. Anyways, eight years later um, with my fellow co-executive producer, Candy Amelon, um, we uh, were able to, uh, pitch it to High Noon, who then sold it to Animal Planet, and uh, they greenlit the series in February. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, they ordered six one-hour episodes for season one, and um, they filmed between February and May, filming wrapped uh, in late May, and it should be airing um, late 2016 or early 2017. Wow. So, That's awesome. Yeah, so, and, and so because the um, project came about, because my dog almost died, <laughs> I decided kind of as an honor to her being saved that if the show ever happened, uh, I get a small budget. I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day production of the filming, but I get a small um, percentage of each episode as a co-executive producer. So I decided I would use that money to start a nonprofit dog rescue, oh. which I now have uh, Hollywood Huskies. And we started uh, in March. March 15th is our first dog. He was in the holding pen next to be put down on death row oh, at one of the shelters. But yeah, we just uh, last week saved our 20th dog. Congratulations. So, congratulations. Wow. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. So hollywoodhuskies.com? Uh, .org. .org. Yeah, hollywoodhuskies.org. Okay. Everybody should go to that. Um, also, uh, what is 
the project that they should look for as far as your composition? What's the next thing that they should look for in the theaters or on TV or in video games near you? <laughs> well, Homesick is still out on video game. It was a not that long ago a release. It's a really awesome. For anybody that likes video games, this is an indie game. It's available on Steam release. Um, so that's definitely, it was just an amazing project. And the vision, for people that like that, it's a kind of a puzzle 3D game where you wake up and you know where, where you are and you're exploring the world. It's, it's just a gorgeous game. So I would highly recommend that to anyone that plays video games. Um, and then the Lifetime TV Breakup Nightmare, I think, is going to be out. Um, Breakup on, Nightmare? On, what could it be about? <laughs> I guess, on Lifetime? <laughs> and when will that be out? I'm sorry. Uh, well, it aired in March, so okay. it should be out uh, on video on demand and stuff at some point. But yeah, I guess I guess Mom, Tommy Made a Dinosaur will be the next uh, release, which is going to be video straight to video on demand. <laughs> that's going to be fun. And, and Elvis Lives, I'm not sure when that's, you know, other than uh, the AXS. Uh, that, that's just a fun a fun film. So any, any of those. And are you followable at all? Do you tweet? Tweet. I need to get back up on Twitter. I am on Facebook. Cool. Um, and I do have a website, heatherschmidt.com. Everybody go to heatherschmidt.com. And uh, everybody go to hollywoodhuskies.org. Yeah. And so once, once I get my Twitter account up, it'll be on my website too. Okay. Well, I cannot thank you enough for being here. You were wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for having me and both of you. And Neil, um, is uh, do you want people to follow you and want to point them in any direction? You know, I'm not exactly sure what this Twitter thing is. I've been on it for a while. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what it functions as, but people can, uh, we'll definitely have any updates on whatever I'm working on on there. So at Ntibedo, N-T-H-I-B-D-E-A-U. And as always, you can go to onthepage.tv. You can meet in class fabulous students and writers like Heather Schmidt. Um, I am going to be teaching a TV class August 20th here in Los Angeles. It's from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with special guest speaker Carol Kirshner. And I'd love to see you there. If you can't make it to the live class, go to onthepage.tv, go to the online section, and there's a bunch of recorded classes, including ATV class, and that goes through Cinevi. So uh, so just check that out. I cannot leave the podcast without a thank you. Gosh, we've been getting some big donations lately. Yeah, last, last week were a couple big ones. Oh, my God. This is the same. We've got Paul R. Niven. Paul R. Niven, uh, who has been listening for quite a while, really great guy. Um, he is also the author of, I'm just going to plug his book because he sent us a lot of Why money. Not? So here we go. He is the author of Objectives and Key Results. How about that? What's that book about? Uh, <laughs> it's about a bad breakup. Uh. And, um, and so, Paul, thank you so much for your donation of $250. Ooh. $250. Nice. My God. So thank you. That really inspires us to keep on the page going. So I appreciate it. And it helps pay for our producers. Okay. So that's why you get Neil today. So thank you so much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would like to uh, thank Heather one more time. You were awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really enlightening. Thank you to Neil for producing. My pleasure. Thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a good writing week. (laughs) 